Hi, my name is Janine. I'm a heroin addict. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm like nervous kind of. So I've spoken a lot, but I haven't been to a live meeting in San Diego. We haven't had many live meetings. So I haven't led in a while. And I um, I took notes today and then I, I left my notes at my house. So just, you know, gonna like put it together as we go. So, but I never did notes before. So should be fine. Uh, like I said, my name is Janine. I'm a heroin addict. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. So in January, I had six years. And um, so HA is my favorite. HA is like the fellowship where my life really started to change and I was finally able to do this. And I, I had bounced around other fellowships for a long time. Um, and I, I really, I, so I take this so seriously and I'm getting chills even while I, was, while I talk about it because I really think that we needed our own platform to talk about like Suboxone and methadone and shooting up and hep C and all the things that are unique to us that we can share about and that make our journey different and that we weren't able to really share about in some of the other fellowships. So I'm glad that you guys are here. I'm glad that we have this space. And I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm like proud to be a part of HA. You know what I mean? Like, I like your shirt, man. When I walked in, I saw that I need an HA shirt. Like I would wear that HA shirt. And I didn't used to feel that way. Um, I did not used to feel that way. And this is not a group that I would have wanted to be a part of. The other thing I, I always like to start with is that, man, I spent so much more time sitting in a room, listening to someone like me. When I had either no time, I would get loaded and go to meetings like all the time, which I know is kind of weird, but I was like doing that a lot in the end. I would shoot up at the Alano Club in Oceanside and get between the they had to have known, but between the cracks of the doors and I'd be like belt around my mouth, like, or um, in my armpit by that point was the only place I could go like between the things waiting for people between meetings, but I desperately wanted to be sober. And that's why I was there. And I just literally didn't know how, but I spent way more time as that person than this person. And when I would be sitting in meetings, when you start talking about like two years, three years, four years, five years, like that didn't even make sense to me. That seemed fucking crazy. In 15 years of trying, in 15 years of trying, the most that I ever got was 94 days once in a program and I relapsed and I got kicked out. That's it. And I was trying. The first 10 years of my using Coke, drinking, whatever, my life wasn't progressing, but it wasn't heroin bad, right? Like, and I learned what that was later. The last five years, heroin bad, you know, and that was when I learned what it really meant to, you know, like to be a drug addict. And that's when everything changed for me. And for the last five years of my using, I was either incarcerated or I was homeless or I was in a program. Um, there was no, I wasn't even on like the radar. I had no identification. I had no ID. Uh, I mean, I wasn't paying taxes before then anyways, but I definitely wasn't paying taxes now. There was just, I, I wasn't around. Um, if I re even recently, six years later, I was trying to get a credit card like a year ago and the people called me and they literally were like, okay, so this social security number, they thought it was fraud. They were like, this hasn't been used in a long, like we thought this chick was dead. Basically you need to like take, I had to go get like a fingerprint and, you know, like I'd been off the radar for a really long time. Um, and the last five years, that's kind of what that looked like for me. And I would try, I would get into a program. I would actually really try and man, I didn't want to be using anymore. Like I really didn't, I didn't. And I just couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. I could not stop smoking meth and I could not stop shooting up heroin. Man. 
Like I just couldn't, no matter what, I'd be in a program doing pretty good, get a pass. My first few passes, I would do okay. The third one, same deal, smoke meth. Get away with it for a little while, right? When I came back, there's always like that time when you're ducking the test before they've tested you. And I like knew that math pretty well. And then I would end up strung out again. And the last place that I ended up, so I was in a program for like nine months. That's one where I'd gotten the 94 days and I relapsed and I got kicked out and I was in a sober living. And so my thing was I would live in a sober living, but I would pass your drug test anyways. I'd gotten very good at passing a drug test even when I was using. And they were testing me all the time and I was committed. You could wake me up four in the morning and I'd be ready. And I was pretty committed, but I'd been strung out for, I don't know, two months living in this sober living. And they tested me that morning. It was New Year's Eve of 2014. And they tested me that morning and I passed. And I went out on my bike all day and I was, uh, you know, doing whatever I was doing, trying to get money. And um, that night I was sort of trying to get clean. I had a half a Suboxone. You know how this shit goes. I had a half a Suboxone. A friend of mine, I'd met up with him at the transit center in Oceanside and he was still loaded, but we were like friends and I kind of wanted to get clean. And I was training some heroin for Suboxone. And I don't know why, but he was like, wait, hold on. And he took the Suboxone from me and he bit out of it, took some and then put it in a cellophane and gave it to me. So I had a half of a bitten Suboxone to my name and I kind of wanted to get clean off of that. So I had this half a Suboxone and a buddy of mine was going to get me a motel room and I was going to try to do the 24 hours and then eat the Suboxone. Like, I don't know where it was going to go from there, but I was like, I was trying kind of, and they tested me that morning and it was clean. And the owner of the sober living called me that night and she was like, look, you know, there was some heroin left in your bathroom in the bathroom that you use and we're pretty sure it's yours and you can't come back to the house. And I don't know if you guys can relate to this. I'm like a part-time like lawyer when I'm using. And I was like, that's fucking circumstantial evidence, man. I'm like standing in the parking lot, it's Applebee's. I'm like eight other women use that bathroom. You don't know that shit's mine. In the back of my mind, I'm like, how did I leave heroin somewhere? But I actually did that all the time. I would like leave dope places. It was weird. Um, and she said, well, you know what? You're right. There are eight other women that use that bathroom, but we're pretty sure you're using. And I brought up that I'd passed the drug test that morning. And again, she was like, you know what, Janine, you're right. You passed the drug test this morning, but we're pretty sure it's yours. Uh, but I tell you what, if you can bring me a blood test tomorrow or whenever you can get a blood test and show that you're clean, I'll support you and you can come back into the house. And no one had ever asked me for a blood test before. And my first response was, I was like, fine, you know, to her. And I got off the phone and I didn't even have, I had a flip phone. You guys remember, did it, any of you guys ever get the Obama phone when you got out of jail? Okay, so I still had the flip phone, the Obama phone so that you could get a job or whatever you're supposed to do with it. Like my Obama phone and my EBT that I always sold for heroin. But I had my flip phone and I was with my friend who was like gonna get me the hotel room. And I got off the phone and I was like, fucking give me your phone. I need to, I was like, I'm just going to forge this document. I could do this. This is fucking not hard. I actually did it once a long time ago for something else. And I was like, give me your phone. I need to Google the Tri-City logo. And then I got to go to Kinko's and blah, 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 blah. like, I'm going to just tweak out on this thing and like make a fucking fake blood test. Like I can do this and I can go back. And this guy's been a friend of mine for a long time. Like we used to use together and, but he'd been clean for a long time. We'd actually both been in this raid and he went to prison for a year and a half and he'd been sober for a while. And I would, but he like supported me kind of no matter what kind of crazy shit I was saying. 
And I was going on and on and on about how I was going to forge this document. And I looked up and he was just sitting there staring at me and like not really going with me on it. You know what I mean? He was just like watching me be nuts. And I remember saying, I was like, dude, come on. What am I, what am I supposed to do? I don't want to do this. I don't want to forge this document. She's making me, you know what I mean? Like my back is up against a wall. She's making me forge this document because what am I going to do? Kick on the streets. Like I need to eat my Suboxone here tonight. I need to go my 24 hours and then I'll go back and I'll feel better and blah, 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 blah. Like what else am I supposed to do? And I remember he said, he said, I mean, you could get clean. <laughs> And in the moment, I remember I was like, mm, like I made some face, but it, it struck me in that moment, right? And this was not the first time I'd heard something like that, but I thought, well, fuck, like, I guess I could do that. You know what I mean? So I didn't make the stupid document. I had my Suboxone. I got loaded that night. And the next day I was not ready to go anywhere yet. And um, I called a connect in Oceanside and I was like, I don't know where I'm gonna go. And he said, well, I have a place that you can stay. Um, you can stay in the doghouse in my backyard. And I said, great, thank you. That fucking works for me, you know, on this uh, new year. Now today was New Year's Eve. And I was like, awesome, thank you. And so I told my buddy, I was like, I need a ride to this alley in Oceanside. I'm gonna go live in this doghouse for a few days, get my shit together, get my life together in this doghouse. And he brought me there and dropped me off. It was actually like a shed that his dog would go in and out of. There was like a futon mat on the ground, like a, a dog bed with like charger blanket, like covered in dog hair. And you could kind of stand up in it almost. And he would, I stayed there for three days and he padlocked me in at night. Um, and this is true. And this is always a part of my story that I'm like, nobody's gonna believe this shit. I probably shouldn't even share it, but I do anyways, because it's so insane. The reason he padlocked me in there was not to keep me in there. It's because he had had somebody staying there once before and his wife was crazy. And she tried to kill her with a chainsaw. She chased her down the street with a chainsaw and like everybody knew this story. And so he padlocked me in there at night. So Lisa wouldn't try to kill me with a chainsaw. That was legitimate. And so I'm in this, and I knew that. I remembered when it happened. Like, you know how you all hear this kind of shit and we're like, Lisa's fucking crazy. And then I'm like the one that's going to stay there. So I stayed in this shed for three nights I had a compact with a light on it so I could pick my face in the dark. And I would sit there with my feet out in front of me and smoke meth and shoot up heroin and pick my face in the dark for three days. And I would do the San Diego reader had a crossword puzzle and I would do the crossword puzzle all night, just like tweaker, junkie, heroin, all the things that you could think of homeless person with my flip phone. And that was where I lived. And I remember the, the second night at like three in the morning, he unlocked the padlock and let a guy in there with me and locked it. And this guy, and he was a very scary looking guy. He had like tattoos on his eyelids and like, it was a scary situation on his face. And he walked in and I kind of looked at him and he was like, hey, what's up? I was like, and there was a little folding chair in the shed. And he said, can I sit with you? And I was like, no. And I just kind of turned back to my picking and my, my crossword puzzle. And he got on his phone and sat there for like two hours and he was playing a game 
And I think texting my friend, I don't know. Anyway, eventually he came back and let him out and I heard them talk outside and my buddy never mentioned it. And I realized later, I think I was probably supposed to sleep with that guy. And that's why I was in there. I don't actually really know. But like, it occurred to me later what a dangerous moment of my life that was because this shed was in the middle of his backyard facing an alley. Like, I mean, anything could have happened in that moment, you know? And at the time I was mostly just irritated because I was picking my face and I knew that that was gross. And then there was somebody in there, you know, but like later I realized what that really meant. But there was another moment too, where I sat there on the third night and I thought to myself like, okay, I'm 34. I went to college. I'm from like a decent place and I'm locked in a shed shooting my armpit, hoping I don't get murdered by a chainsaw. This is my life. Like I live here. I live in this shed and it's freezing. It was January, 2015, you know, January. So I stayed there first, second and third. And the last day that I was there. So I, I had a friend that I had lived with off and on. He was a Marine from Camp Pendleton and he'd be in Afghanistan and come back. And he happened to be back and he actually called my flip phone and was at 29 Palms. And I answered and he said, hey, what are you doing? Cause he knew I was like, you know, uh, you know he knew I was a strung out person, you know, that was not a secret. And, um, and I was like, hey man, um, I need you to come get me. I'm in a shed in Oceanside. And he said, all right, I'll come get you right now. Do you promise you'll be there? So I, I met him at a Burger King, like walked out of the, the alley to this Burger King. And my buddy came and picked me up and I had my half of my Suboxone. I had my chewed Suboxone that I had still. I had my one Suboxone and one shoe on. And he picked me up at the Burger King and brought me out to his place in Palm Desert. And I kicked heroin for the last time. And man, I get chills like thinking about that. <clears throat> of all the times that I did it, I wasn't in a hospital. It wasn't medicated. I just had my chewed up Suboxone. Of all the times that I had done it, like this time shouldn't have worked, right? I, I wasn't in a program. I wasn't in jail. I wasn't going back anywhere, you know? And I'm out there for two weeks and I just, I ran a fireplace the whole time. I watched Game of Thrones. I binged Game of Thrones. I had never... So I'd been so out of it. I hadn't heard of this. And a friend of mine was like, I know what you got to do. You got to watch this show, Game of Thrones. And I was like, cool, done. So four seasons were out. And I literally just ate Jolly Ranchers, chain smoked cigarettes. I think he made me food. There was a fireplace going. I was drinking. So the last day I did heroin was actually January 5th, but I drank through my kick through the 15th. Um, and I would just like pass out and wake back up and pass out and wake back up and watch Game of Thrones and smoke cigarettes. And while I was there, I had absolutely no idea where I was gonna go when I came back. No idea where I was gonna go. Um, no job, hadn't worked in a long time. There was one sober living that I had lived at multiple times and I'd gotten kicked out of multiple times. And I was trying to arrange getting back in there. The guy said no a couple of times. Anyways, he ended up letting me come back. So after two weeks, my friend brought me back and I went to the sober living that I'd been kicked out a bunch of times before. And this was the time that it worked. And, um, you know, I never, I never shot dope again. And that, and that was six years ago. And I used to sometimes kind of leave my story there, like, you know, in a 10 minute share, cause it's already been 15 and that would take up the whole thing. 
And I'd be like, whatever, that was funny and motivating. You know, like I'm done now. I never use it again. But like, that's not really enough. And I was thinking about that this last week, but why? Like what was different? And in the first few years, I would think about it. Like when I had nine months and congratulations, by the way, on nine months, I started feeling weird at nine months, like well, even four months, which I'd never got to. But nine months, I literally, I had this weird feeling. So at seven months, somebody actually gave me a car. Um, somebody gifted me a car at seven months. And I hadn't had a car in like five years, but I would be getting out of my car. This is weird. Literally like looking up in the air, I thought something was going to fall on me. It was like weird to have nine months. I don't know if you're experiencing that at all, but it felt like probably not something falling on your head out of the sky, but like, like it just felt weird. I'd never even come close to having that kind of time. It didn't even seem real. And my main explanation for a while was, I don't know, magic, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. And to some extent, that's true. To some extent, I believe that God decided I had had enough that I would share. I, I had had enough that there was no way to believe that I had done it myself because I came into this program really, really, really arrogant about my intelligence, super arrogant. I was smarter than anybody. And I knew that I did really well on my SATs. <laughs> and I would like tell people that when we were getting high, they could be like smoking meth with people and like telling people what I got on my SAT scores, you know, like, and I, and I felt different when I was with them. I was like, you're an actual criminal junkie. I almost went to law school. I didn't. But I almost, I almost went to law school, you know, I didn't even graduate, but I went for like years and years to college, you know, I didn't finish, but I went, you know, and I always felt really different. And I believe that if I had, if I had been able to actually stay sober, even one more attempt before this, I might've thought it was me. You know what I mean? Cause I believed I would think my way out of it. I did. But by the end, it was like, hands open. This is not me because I'm fucking trying here. Like, oh my God, I don't want to shoot dope anymore. Oh my God, I hate this. And I couldn't, you know? And so I think, I, I do think that it got to a point where God said, you know what? You get it now. It's not you, it's me. And you're asking me and I feel like you're going to share. And that's one of the reasons why I take sharing my story I take it so seriously because I believe in the third step prayer that I've only gotten what I've gotten based on my willingness to share it with others. And so I, I, I keep that going. Like when I first see, I'm glad you actually told me that you had to leave. Cause I would have thought you were just walking out. I'm going to go home and get out my online. This is really good. Oh, good. Oh, like on the podcast. I'm sorry. Excellent. No, that's fine. But I'm glad you told me. I literally would have thought that guy just left because I'm nervous and I don't know any of you and it's mostly men. And I'm like, I don't know if you think this is funny. Um, you came back. That's good. That's a good sign. Um, I thought you left forever and I saw it, you know, I noticed it. Um, but I believe that God finally said, you've had enough, you know, it's not you, right? You didn't beat this thing. So part of it was magic, but also, but also there were some really specific things I did. I had three central mindset shifts this time that led to action for me. And that's when I, what I want to share with you guys, because even at six years, I still, man, I still relate more to being in early, in early recovery than now. Like to this day, driving down the street, if I see somebody waiting for the bus, they're probably not an addict in recovery, but to this day, I'm like, Oh my God. Like I hated public transportation more than anybody in the world. Like I still remember waiting for the stupid sprinter in San Diego. It makes this awful noise. And like, 
I still relate to that so much. And so I want to be able to share something actionable that you could do early on. So one of the first mind shift sets, mind shift sets that I had was I had like two weeks. I just come back to that sober living. I was still sick. Like I was still kind of dope sick. I definitely wasn't sleeping through the night. I was trying to get a job and I was at the McDonald's by the sober living. And one of the other things that got challenging, the more and more times I tried to do this as I had zero help from like family or anything. It was just where I could go, which was all like county funded programs or like stuff through jail or through different programs. And so I was, I was trying to get sober where I had been using. So I would see people all the time that I had known, you know, and I was at McDonald's and I saw this guy that I used with for years. And I was walking out and I remember he ran up to the door and he was like, Hey, get your ass back in here. I got a shot for you. Like he had like a shot ready for me. And this guy like actually never gave out dope. I don't even know what got into him this day, but he basically told me that like he had a shot of heroin if I went with him back into the bathroom at McDonald's. And I said something like, like, I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. I'll be right back. I hold on, like hold that thought. And I left and I literally ran, cause again, I'm in a place where I don't know how to stop using but I don't want to be using anymore. And I literally like sprinted up the hill to my sober living and the manager of the sober living was standing there. Me and this guy went way back and we used to fight and argue all the time. And like, you know, you know how it is when you're in some of like the shady or sober livings or maybe you don't, but like, it's always dicey whether or not a manager is gonna be helpful or just like blame you. You know what I mean? For some shit, that's not your fault. We, he was like always on the edge of that, you know? So I ran up the hill and I was like, fuck it, I'm just gonna take a chance. And I was like, oh my God, Steve, like listen to what just happened. I just saw so-and-so like down the hill. He was notorious. He was gonna give me a shot of heroin. And I don't wanna do it. And I said, I was like, but like, it's free heroin. Who gives up free heroin, you know? And I remember he got really mad, he threw cigarettes on the ground. They were Newports, I remember. And he was like, that shit isn't free? Like, what the fuck has that cost you? What do you mean that's free? That isn't free. That's the worst return on an investment I've ever seen. It's not free, you know? And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's not free. You're right, you're right, okay. I remember I walked upstairs to my apartment and he came back up there like five minutes later and just walked into the women's side. And he was like, I'm not done with you yet. And I remember being like, I can, of course you're not like what? And he said, and he started yelling at me again and I stopped him and he was a crack addict. He had like 10 years, but he had been a crack addict. And I was like, Steve, come on. What would you do if you saw someone somewhere and they just like offered you crack? And I remember I said, you'd struggle. <laughs> and he was like, he said, that would never happen to me. That would never happen to me because I'm known in this community. I've taken a stand in this community as a person that is clean and sober. And that is how I live. And that would never happen to me. And he said, you have been so committed to being a criminal and to being a drug addict for so long. You are not going to be able to sleep on the edge of the bed. You are going to fall out every night. You have to get all the way up against the wall. You are going to have to take such a strong stance. Like you have to pick a side and you're going to have to take a stand. And that's just it. Or we're going to keep losing you. And he walked out. And I heard that. Like I, I heard him say that. And I was so desperate to do something different that what I did in that moment was I went on Facebook and I deleted anybody that I had had using connections with. And man, like, I really didn't want to do that, you know? And you know how sometimes you'll hear addicts talking 
And they're like, those people aren't your friends. They want you to die. Like people you were using with. Like, that's not always true. You know what I mean? Sometimes they were my friend and sometimes they're good people and they're addicts too. And they weren't trying to kill me all the time, you know? But, but, but he was right. Like riding that line where I was polite to the guy, you know, was keeping me like half in that world. And I had lived there too long. And I realized that was just not an option for me anymore. I couldn't just like be nice anymore, you know? Plus part of it was, what if I relapsed? I wanted to be able to call him still, you know? And that was obviously part of it. So, you know, I deleted that stuff. I hadn't heard of Instagram yet because I'd been gone for so long. I hadn't heard of Instagram or Spotify. Isn't that crazy? When I got my, like people had to tell me what these things were anyways. Um, deleted contacts from my phone and deleted anybody from Facebook that I knew. And then the other thing that I did was I decided to take a stand even just there in the community. Cause I had always been somebody in programs where like, if you relapsed, you could come tell me, you know what I mean? And I'd be like, oh shit, like, what are you going to do? You know, and like, I wouldn't tell on you. Like, again, just writing that line, you know, of, of where am I on this? And I realized I needed to take a stance where like, you wouldn't even tell me that because, oh, that's Janine, you know, like she's like super about the program, you know, don't tell her. Like I needed to become that person. And so that was something that I did early on. And the good news about relapsing a lot too is I already had a lot of resources. I already had a sponsor. This is the good news about relapse because I relapsed all the time and I never saw it as a good thing, but I was reevaluating that this year. Those of you that have relapsed a lot, you know where all the meetings are. You probably already have a sponsor. You probably already have a book. You probably already have a just for today or a daily reflections or whatever at your house. Like the good thing is you already have all the stuff. When I started the program, I'd never heard of any of these things. So there's kind of some benefit to being someone that's been around for a while. Because what I haven't said yet is I was already calling my sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for years and years from before I finally stopped. I was calling her from where I was kicking. I called her when I got back and I was going to meetings every day. I knew where they all were, where I could walk to. So that to me is just like, I was already doing that, but I don't want to skip over that. Sometimes I skip over that. And step two to me is actually my favorite step. And I encourage getting there. I think it brings gratitude and light back into your life a little. So steps, sponsor, meetings, duh. Everybody says that, but there's a reason behind that. You know, this is just kind of the extra stuff. So I made that, that decision to move all the way over. The second thing that happened was same guy. I don't remember what happened. We were fighting again. I had like 60 days or something. And the manager was screaming at me about something else. And he said another thing that struck me. He was like, why don't you for once in your life become someone that instead of everybody having to take care of, you can finally take care of somebody else as a fucking adult, instead of everybody else having to bring you cigarettes and do this and that. And I was embarrassed by that because that was true. I was 34 and I was not capable of taking care of very much at all. And I didn't really wanna be like that, you know? I don't wanna be a loser. I don't wanna be a drain, you know? None of us do. We don't wanna be like that. And again, in action, in that moment, I realized I did have the opportunity to help take care of people in my immediate surroundings. So I was in a sober living that was mainly people with severe mental illness, like fully, you know, full disability. And I hated it. 
But I realized in that moment that I had an opportunity that most of the people that live there like didn't have, you know what I mean? Like I had the ability to get a job again and go back out in the world. And there were people there that were like really struggling and I had the opportunity to take care of people there in my immediate environment. And this is a goofy story. Again, I'm like kind of watching the time here too. Our freezer, this place was, it was a little ghetto. The freezer had been completely frozen up with ice. Like there was one little pocket of space at the top where we had like a little bit of stuff stuffed up there and the rest was a complete block of ice. And it had been happening slowly since I moved in. And every single day I bitched about it. Every single day I complained about it. Everybody else complained about it too. And it was just this, you know, it was this old ass refrigerator probably been donated in like 1968. And it was like completely frozen over. This might sound dumb, but I decided to defrost the fucking freezer and like be somebody that took care of something. And I Googled how to do it and the thing was so old. It didn't have, I guess there's a way that you can like defrost a nicer one, but this didn't have that option. So I had to boil water, stick the pot in there, shut the door and literally just like water would pour out the front and clean it up. And like, and we had to unplug it and that was how we defrosted it. And it took me like five hours of boiling water and putting it in the thing. And I swear to God, as the ice defrosted at the very bottom of this, there were two bizarro things. And I have no idea how they got in there. One was men's underwear, whitey tighties, hand of God was in there. And this had been a woman's unit for a long time. Like I even asked the manager, not sure how they were in there. It was disgusting and a pacifier. I don't know. And there's like, no kids were there though. So there was a weird pacifier and green stuff on it and underwear in this thing. And I came across that while I was cleaning, but like, I became someone that could defrost a freezer and I hadn't done anything that would help anyone in a really long time. And so in my shit sober living, I was able to kind of take it upon myself to become someone that took care of somebody else. I also took on a commitment there at the sober living. There was a meeting that you could walk to and I became the secretary of that meeting. And if you've never taken on a commitment, people always tell you to take on a commitment. And I think that that was one of the things that changed for me because I'd never done that before. And I guess it's about learning discipline and showing up, but it's also about, and this I didn't know would happen. I kind of started to feel a little bit better about myself because I hadn't fulfilled a commitment or an obligation to anybody in a really long time. And the more I showed up for this commitment, the better that I felt. And I became somebody that felt comfortable sharing at a meeting. I would never share at meetings before I was embarrassed. I was like, what do I have to offer? I can't get any time. Like, no, I'm not raising my hand. I have nothing fucking to say. But over time at this little meeting, you know, I started sharing more and I realized I did kind of have something to say and something to share. The last mindset shift that happened with me, not the last one, but one of the major ones in the early days was, so I'm in that sober living, I'm staying on the couch. Actually, I was just on the couch. I wasn't even in a room yet. And I had a birthday. I turned, I don't even like saying this out loud. I turned 35 in this sober living, living on the couch. And I had 90 days off of heroin and I was fucking 35 years old and I had nothing, no driver's license, no car, no job. I didn't even have a bank account because I was in that check systems thing forever for bouncing checks. And that I had nothing. And I remember thinking, my God, if I could go back to high school where I did really well academically, if I could have been like walking down the hallway and 1998 and like the ghost of Christmas future or whatever floated into the hallway 
and stopped me and was like, Janine, do you want to see where you're going to be at 35? I'd been like, yeah, fuck yeah. Of course I'm going to be married. I'm probably going to live in a mansion. Also probably famous. I don't know why, but like famous for something. Show me. And the guy was like, okay, yeah, none of that shit's going to happen. But what you will have going for you that day is you will be 90 days off of heroin, which will be a huge achievement for you at that point in time. Oh my God. I would I, like, I, I, well, first of all, I probably would have been like, okay, you're in the wrong, this is like where the AP classes are. You're in the wrong section of the school. You should go down to the other side. But like, I wouldn't have believed that. I would have been devastated. And I just kept having that thought that day on my birthday. And I was doing this meditation series at the time, Deepak Chopra and Oprah, Oprah Winfrey do these 21 day free meditations. I don't know if they do them anymore. They used to do them regularly and they're free. And it was about gratitude was the one at the time, which I know sounds so cliche. And I was never like a gratitude person. You know, somebody, the secretary always wants to make the topic gratitude. And I was like, oh my God, so original. Like when somebody just gratitude. But this day I went outside and that was like the sober living where there's old couches that are supposed to be inside, but they're outside. So they've been rained on forever. And I would smoke other people's butts out of this thing because I couldn't afford cigarettes. And I like went outside and I was listening to this meditation and the quote of that meditation that day was, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It makes what we have enough and more. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. And there was like a 20 minute meditation along with it. And I listened and I listened to the meditation. And I don't know why, cause man, I'd been here before. I'd been at about the 90 day mark before. And after I did the meditation, I remember opening my eyes and I realized, and you guys will understand this. I realized I'm not dope sick right now, you know? And, and I don't have to get well right now. Like I'm not, I'm not watching a clock. I don't have to get well. Like remembering that right now makes me want to cry, you know, like, and I just realized, holy shit, holy shit. I am so glad to be in this body right now that is not dope sick or strung out because I am so tired of telling my mom every time she asks me if I just want to go somewhere I can't go with you somewhere. If it's gonna be longer than three hours, I can't go. I can't go anywhere. I can't travel. I can't do anything. I can't do any of that. And I was overwhelmed with gratitude in that moment to not be strung out, overwhelmed. And I looked up and I realized that Vista, which is where this was, has like this really nice view of mountains. And I saw it, like I saw it for the first time. And I'd lived in this sober living off and on for years. And I saw this view in this ghetto place I complained about all the time. And I realized, I was like, man, that's really pretty. And then I realized that's been there the whole time. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see it because I was miserable. And then I realized oh my God, the reason I'm able to see it right now is because I was a heroin addict and I'm not a heroin addict anymore. And it's like the color of the world changed. And if I'm honest, the high school me that I was like grieving that day, that bitch wasn't grateful for anything. 
you know? All I thought about, I wanted to be not just a lawyer, I wanted to be a divorce lawyer. As a teenager, that's like a grimy ass lawyer. And that's what I wanted to be. Like I wanted to benefit on people's heartache. That was my goal at 15 years old, you know? That was all I cared about. And I thought, man, thank God I shot all that heroin and made myself miserable because now, now I'm happy just sitting here, you know, I'm happy just sitting here and I still didn't have a car and I still didn't have a checking account, but that shift changed my recovery this time. And that was the place that I had never gotten to. I was in the misery of the early newcomer grind because the early newcomer grind sucks and it does. And that's true. And I won't tell you that it's not, but I wasn't dope sick. And I'm still grateful for that to this day. You know, I, I own a fitness studio. So that's the other thing. Turns out I can go for 45 minutes, I guess. I had taught fitness before I was doing drugs, like while I was doing drugs. So I lived in LA for a long time and I was teaching spin and doing Coke because why not, you know, like LA actress, waitress, doing Coke, teaching spin. And um, so I had this career that I could keep going back to every time I got clean. That's also what made me different. You know, I thought like the junkies, I was like, you don't have a job. I'm a spin teacher, you know, like while we were homeless, like I taught at the Beverly Hills Country Club. People were like, bullshit, no, you know, but I'd gotten a job right when I got back and I was teaching like one day a week, then it became two days a week and it was far. I was going from Vista to Encinitas, if you know San Diego, on the bus, it was like two hours each way for one class. And I was so grateful to be there and have my job back because I love teaching so much. And one of the things that made me so sad was that I thought I was never gonna get to do my career again. So I don't know if you guys have anything like that that you like live for when you're using, it feels like you might not ever get to do it again. Like hold on to that, those are signs. You know, the things that bring you joy are the guideposts. And I had joy in teaching and I thought I was never gonna get to do it again and I was doing it again and that came through in every class. And I now own that studio. Four years later, I bought it with my husband. I met a guy at an HA meeting. That was another thing. I was like, who the fuck's gonna go out with me? I'm 35 years old and I don't have anything, you know? Turns out another heroin addict married me. And he's cute and he's young and he has a good job. And we have a great life and we bought my fitness studio. So if that's a concern of yours, I'm really glad I met him at the step house. Our, our um, theme song at our wedding was, um, you know that stupid Rihanna song, we found love in a hopeless place because we met at the step house. And like a couple of our friends, the step house is like this, but of San Diego. So we met at a meeting, um, but I own that studio now. And that gratitude showed through in every class that I taught and I brought it to everything that I did, you know? And there were days when it wasn't perfect. And there were days when I was miserable. I almost relapsed over not having a car multiple times. That was a big thing of mine. I would relapse over public transportation because I hated it so much. I'd smoke meth just to like get through the day. And then I'd end up throwing out on heroin and then I'd get kicked out of my program, leading me to be homeless on the bus for longer. And that was a cycle that continued for like five years. Last thing I wanna share is that that realization, the gratitude, not just to not be dope sick, but to actually have been an addict that relieved me in that moment of like years of shame and regret 
I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't believe I became a heroin addict. You know, us and crackheads were the worst. You know what I mean? Like, like stigma wise. And I couldn't believe I had done that. And in that moment, I got so happy that it had ever happened because I don't think I would have walked a spiritual path without it. I know that I wouldn't have. And this is what I want to share with you guys. So when men and women go off to fight like overseas in wars, they tell them, okay, you have two ways of coming back, status quo, undamaged or damaged, right? And we want not damaged. We want status quo. That's what we're going for. But there is a third way to come back from trauma. And this is not my theory. This is an actual psychological thing that happens that isn't talked about as much, which is post-traumatic growth. You can come back from a trauma better than you were. And there are very clear reasons for this. One of them is typically you come back with a spiritual life and guidance. I'm, I can speak to that being true. Some of you guys probably can too. Your relationships are usually stronger. You have gratitude for people in your life that maybe you didn't have before. And walking that spiritual life allows you to live a deeper experience. And so you guys, you can come back from what we've been through, not just the same. You can grow, you can be better. So it's this idea of not just necessarily bouncing back, but you can actually bounce forward and you can come back and say, it's okay that I lived that life because it made me the way that I am now. And I think that walking in that space is a clearer and easier path for recovery if you can get there. So anyways, thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah.